after the round of interviews today, when uh, we went down to lunch, teachers were talking about how the retreat was going. And um, what we said uh, that all of us observed today is that you all are really cooking. <laughs> that, again, is an old Buddhist technical term. <laughs> and at this point in the retreat, the momentum of your practice is really clear because almost everyone who came in to see me, at any rate, today, had something uh, really interesting going on, and sometimes many interesting things going on. And it was just a sign that the practice had become so engaged. It's quite a shift from a few days ago. The start of the retreat, I don't know what each of your individual experiences was, but there was a lot of doubt, a lot of doubt in the people that I talked to. What is this practice? Where is it going? Why am I saying these phrases? What's going to happen? And at this uh, stage that early stage of the retreat, one really wonders if the, if the practice is going to lift off, achieve you know, that critical mass for liftoff. And it reminded me of a story from a teacher who brought it up on a retreat uh, one time because we were talking about the subject of faith. He was a calculus teacher in college and said that he had uh, offered this course in uh, beginning calculus And this one woman student came up to him and said on the first day, she said, well, I'm thinking about taking your class, but I don't know if it will help me or not. And he said, well, uh, what do you want to do? She said, well, I'm studying civil engineering, and I need some tools that will solve this kind of problem. And uh, he said to her, oh, well, this, this course will do it for you. And she said, well, how do I know that? And he said, well, I'm telling you, if you take the course, you'll learn the tools to solve that kind of problem. And she said, but I don't know that for myself. So therefore, I'm not going to take the course. And she she dropped it. So if all of you had said that on the first day, the room would be empty now. But I'm glad that you had enough faith to continue. This was at a retreat that was actually taught by a Tibetan uh, lama. And when he heard this story, he said, uh, good story, but bad ending. (laughs) He said, uh, like European movie. (laughs) So here you all are in an American movie. Okay, good story, good ending. It's happening for you all. And I really appreciate that. I work out at the gym when I'm home two or three times a week if I can. And when I first started going to this gym, there are some pretty hardcore bodybuilders who go to my gym, and I feel quite dwarfed in uh, comparison to them. I go really just to keep healthy and keep some muscle tone up, but there are some guys there who've been really developing the muscles for some years. And when I first went, I was really impressed by them. And I thought, wow, that's really something. I don't know if I want to look like that, but I'm really impressed that they do look like that. And as time went on, I started to realize that the amount of muscle one had wasn't really the important thing. Because what happens when you build a certain amount of muscle at the gym? You add another weight, and then it gets hard again. Have you noticed that? That just when you get good at one level, then you add another weight, and it gets hard again. So in that real sense, you never make any progress. (laughs) It's like koan practice, if you've ever encountered that in the Zen tradition. I did a little bit of koan practice with a 
really great Zen master named Sasaki Roshi, as soon as I solved one koan, he just gave me another one. And then I was back in confusion again. So I never had a sense of making any progress. So what I came to appreciate at the gym is not how many weights somebody can do, but the sincerity of their effort. Because people come into the gym who are, who are a little out of shape and not very strong, and they don't do many weights, but if they're really putting their hearts into it, then they really work out their whole system. And the important thing is not how many weights you can lift, but the quality of your effort. And that really comes from your heart. And so that's what I've been appreciating in the interviews today is uh, the fruits of people's effort are really coming through. And all the groundwork that you've done in these first uh, four days of practice, I really see paying off. Now, in our approach, in the loving-kindness practice, I hope you know that there are two different kinds of good results that happen. One kind of good result that happens from this practice is the presence of metta. The other kind of good result that happens is the absence of metta. Or you might say the obstacles to metta. And generally, as you continue in a sincere way, you will get one of these two results. You will either get the blossoming of loving-kindness or you'll directly encounter those states of mind and of heart that are obstructing the development of metta. And whichever one happens, and actually for most people it's both, it's an alternation, both of these aspects are really, really important for our practice and our growth. They work hand-in-hand together. I think a way to think about them helpfully is that they are the cycles in our practice of purity on the one hand and purification on the other. As we deepen and we contact these pure states of mind, love, compassion, and joy, this gives us the faith and the confidence that we have these beautiful qualities within ourselves. Not only that we have them, but we're starting to manifest them. We're starting to feel them come alive in our lives. And this is a great source of confidence that we can do this work. Then the second part of the cycle of purification is when we encounter the difficult aspects of our hearts and minds. And these are the states like sadness or longing or fear or resentment. These are so important to find because by and large in our daily life they've been buried. They've been operating, but they've been operating at a repressed level. And because we haven't been able to touch them directly, we haven't been able to release them or free ourselves from their underlying activity. So as long as we're not able to contact these difficult forces of the mind, they govern our lives. They've been driving us in different ways as long as they've been unconscious. And now that they're in the light of awareness and the light of metta, there's the possibility of transforming them. So these are actually the seeds of our greatest freedom. These are the things whose appearance is really going to uh, transform our life and our practice as we learn to relate with them. Because metta practice goes right for the heart, 
the feeling level, the feeling nature of our emotional life comes center stage and is even, I would say, intensified uh, with the turning of the mind to metta. And because we have, on the one hand, the purity of love and compassion and joy, and on the other, the difficult states of the sadness and fear and so on, it's almost like in metta retreat, sometimes we don't find very much equilibrium, but some uh, times we're in heaven and sometimes we're in hell. And so the metta retreat often has much more of this alternation of heavenly states and hellish states than of a pasana retreat where you might find more of an equanimity and kind of a cruising uh, level. So don't be surprised by those strong fluctuations in emotion that can come from the metta practice. It's just part and parcel of this approach. It doesn't mean anything is going wrong. It means that the work is happening. You all are happening. This work of purification has a specific meaning in Buddhism. It means to free the mind from the forces of greed, aversion, and confusion. These are the three roots of the unwholesome in our experience and in our actions. It is the work of Dharma practice to reduce and eventually eliminate these three forces from our hearts and minds. And that's part of the work that we're involved in here. Earlier this year, I was preparing a talk on this theme of purification. I was at another center in Massachusetts. And I was sitting at the kitchen table in the apartment that I was staying in at the time and looking out the window into the woods that surrounded uh, the apartment. As I was looking out there, a hawk uh, swooped down in this wooded area. It was late, uh, late winter, so there were no leaves on the trees. Everything was bare, so I could see the hawk flying through the trees and then uh, made a plunge into the leaves that were on the ground and uh, picked up a snake in his claws. And then he took the snake and he settled on a, a fallen tree that was resting at an angle, and he was up about uh, seven or eight feet up in the tree. So sitting in my house, I could almost watch him at eye level. And the hawk pinned uh, the snake to the fallen tree and with his beak reached down and uh, tore off pieces of flesh. And as I was watching and thinking about the topic of purification, the hawk was ripping the snake apart and eating it bite by bite. This is life for many creatures on the planet. The snake didn't want to die. The snake's deepest wish for, was for its own safety and happiness and health and ease. It was tremendously afraid, I imagine, of its death. But the hawk didn't want to die either. The hawk had a strong craving for continued existence, fueled by this uh, fear of perishing and a quest for survival. And the collision of those two uh, was not, not a totally happy picture. We also have these deeply conditioned habits because our past is from that realm of animal life. So we have this deeply conditioned quest for survival 
this deep fear of elimination and of physical pain. This is the kind of conditioning that is in our minds and the depth of it is what makes it so hard to purify. This is why, this is essentially the sources of craving and fear in our hearts and minds. And you can just get a sense, I, I hope, how deeply they go from that image. So this is very difficult work, the overall work of purification. And it's absolutely no wonder that we still have these forces of desire and fear very much alive in us. As I talk about, I want to talk first about the purification aspect tonight of our practice, and then I'll spend more time toward the end on the aspect of purity. And as I talk about the purification, I think because I can't talk about all the forces in the mind in one evening, I want to focus on this factor of aversion. It's one of the three, greed, aversion, and confusion. It's one of the three primary forces. It comes up very often uh, in the retreat situation and so central for many people's practice. So I want to focus on that as I talk about the work of, of purification. Aversion is a term that encompasses a really wide range of states of mind. It is the basic experience of negativity or disliking, but it manifests itself through states uh, like anger, resentment, irritation, impatience, frustration, also fear, anxiety, nervousness, um, despair, depression, sorrow, grief. All of these are different aspects of aversion or negativity. So I want to talk about uh, a few specific ones tonight. But I also want to say that in the texts, metta is presented by the Buddha as the antidote to aversion. So if you can connect to any of these states of mind... Any hits out there? <laughs> there are a few in here. Then metta is the medicine for that state of mind. It is the antidote for all these different forms of aversion because it is essentially the opposite of negativity. It's the friendly, warm, welcoming attitude of mind. So one of the forms of negativity that often comes up in retreat is self-judgment. As we're alone and we lack the, the company of friends and the reinforcement that social contact brings, we often find ourselves getting in touch with fears about our own being. And we get in touch with a sense of uh, inadequacy often, that somehow we're not quite good enough. And that because of that not being good enough, we're not really lovable. No one will love us because we're not worthy of being loved. We're not quite good enough to merit being loved. This was brought up uh, one time when the Dalai Lama was visiting uh, this retreat center in Massachusetts, Insight Meditation Society. It was in the late 70s. The center was just a couple of years old. I think it was three years old at that point. And we hadn't really straightened out our relationships with the townspeople very well at all. There were rumors going around that uh, at IMS 
We uh, held orgies at midnight where we danced around a fire naked. <laughs> and the, the townies, the boys, would love to, to drive up uh, the driveway with their horns blaring and shout curses at us in the middle of the night. But the Dalai Lama came to visit us in 1979. He wasn't as famous then as he is now. He wasn't quite the international figure that he was, but he was still a fairly big deal. The State Department was not providing security for him at that time. The local chief of police got to provide security for him. This established us in the eyes of the local chief of police. Wow, a foreign dignitary is coming to my town and I get to run the siren while I drive him up (laughs) to the center. So all of a sudden we were in with at least part of the townspeople. So the Dalai Lama visited the three-month course uh, toward its end. And after he talked, then he took questions from the meditators. And one young man who was on the retreat raised his hand and said, "I I don't feel good about myself. I just have this underlying feeling that I'm not worthy. Can you speak to that? Can you tell me how, how to work with it? And the Dalai Lama came back with a very strong answer. He said, you are wrong. I mean, he's the bodhisattva of compassion. Most of the time he strokes people. <laughs> but he said, you are wrong. That is just not right. Every being that is born is a beautiful addition of, of creation a beautiful expression of nature. Even uh, uh, animals. Look around here, the deer, the birds, the turkeys, the worms on the pavement. They're all these beautiful expressions of the life of nature. How much more so a human being who has the capacity that you have for kindness and wisdom? Each one of you is a very beautiful and precious being. To think that you were unworthy is absolutely wrong and unfounded. And yet we often have this feeling, don't we? We often feel we're not quite good enough. The metta practice is such a great antidote to this because as we start to connect with that sense of liking and of friendliness in our heart, that sense of warmth, we really start to verify our own goodness. It may not be there all the time. It may just be flickering on some of the time. But when we feel it, we know what a beautiful thing it is and what a gift it is to the world. The world really needs this quality of friendliness. And as it comes alive in our heart, we start to realize this is an important contribution. This is something worthwhile in me that maybe I can learn to bring out into life and into the world. And we start to get a conviction, there's something good that's happening inside. And that's a strong antidote to this feeling of not being good enough. One of the other ways that we can work with the practice to reinforce this uh, lovability, because love really is in the eye of the beholder, is to uh, work with the sending of metta to yourself. Now, I don't know if you've thought about this, but when you send metta to yourself, you're actually playing two roles in that drama. You're the sender and you're the receiver at the same time. Most of us, I think, find it a lot easier to be the sender. 
I don't know if you've noticed that. It's kind of easy to give, isn't it? It's often difficult to receive because receiving can trigger that feeling, I'm not worthy of receiving this gift. So in the sending of metta to yourself, see if you can feel into being the receiver of the metta. Not just being the sender, but what it feels like to receive. One of the ways that you can accentuate this and something we recommend that you play with, imagine as you're receiving the metta phrases that your dearest friends and family members are seated in a half circle in front of you. All the people you'd really like to hang out with, you know, the most. Only people that you want to be there get in that circle. And they're sending the metaphrases to you. The metaphrases are coming out of their hearts to you. And you can be purely in receiving mode and feel what it feels like to receive their love from the people you know do care about you. Another way that it's fun to play with the metta, with this self-judging, is to start to listen to the comments of the judge. You always mess up. You never get it right. You know, nobody's ever going to really be crazy about you. And you start to notice that this judge kind of has a personality. Not a very warm and fuzzy personality either but a definite personality. So you don't have to do a lot of, you know, looking through the past to see, is this my second grade teacher? You know, is this my mother? Is it my father? You don't have to do that. But what if you were to give a personality to that judge? What if you were to kind of make a funny character out of the judge and give it a name and give it a face and sort of make a person out of it? Who does that judge seem like they are. If they were a cartoon character, who would they be? One person that I made this suggestion to uh, decided that his judge was Darth Vader. (laughs) And then every time the judging comment would come in, he'd say, hi, Darth. You know, thanks very much for the suggestion. Go back to the (laughs) metta practice. But another thing that's very effective to do is send metta to Darth because Darth really needs it. You know, as you tune in, you probably recognize Darth is not a very happy character. Darth could use some metta. So if you make a character out of that judge, direct the metta and see what happens. See what happens to the tone of those judging comments. Two other things that are helpful in the metta in working with uh, this tendency to judge. One is feeling the goodness in ourselves And you can also uh, reflect on the qualities that you like in yourself or reflect on good things that you've done in the past just to get in touch with the intention, the wholesome motivation behind those actions. So you'll know that kindness is something that you do from time to time from that good intention. You'll feel that goodness in yourself. And one final thing that can be really helpful is to send metta to yourself as a child. Imagine yourself at a time in your life when you can get in touch with your innocence. It might be four or five, eight or ten, teenage years when you felt that vulnerability and awkwardness. And even have a sense that you can hold that child and be the adult, maybe that that child didn't have. And you can give that child the love and caring and affirmation and visibility. You can see 
what that child had that perhaps no one else at that time was able to see and reflect to you. This can be really healing, and it can really open up uh, the channel of caring for yourself. Another of the forms of aversion that often comes strongly during metta is anger. Seemingly contradictory, but sometimes that's just what gets evoked. This came home to me strongly. I was doing a, a long metta retreat a few years ago, and I'd had a difficult relationship during that year. And during the metta retreat, I was starting to get quite quiet and quite concentrated and feeling a lot of metta. And then the thoughts of this difficult relationship would come into my mind and I'd start going over and over and over, as Sylvia called it, the road to indignation. Just traveling down that path and reliving all the reasons that uh, the anger was deserved. And I would spin out for 30 minutes in the anger. And of course it was, uh, it was very painful. As we get more sensitive through the loving-kindness and through the stillness, when these things hit, they hit harder. And I was suffering from the anger. I think the suffering is the only thing that really prompted me to let go. And that's why it's not a bad thing to experience anger directly in a metta retreat, because then you can really feel the impact of it. It may be that we want the other to suffer, but in fact, in the moment, we're really suffering with it. So I wasn't able to release it very easily. But I'd heard that one could try sending metta to the difficult person. And I thought, well, I could do that, but oh, that's a little hokey. I said, I'd have to pretend that I like them. You know, I don't want to pretend that I like them, so I'm not going to go there. But I, I was desperate. So I thought, okay, I'll try it. And then I started to reflect The usual word that's used to translate vyapada from the Pali, this term vyapada, sometimes called anger, but the term that's most accurately used to translate it is ill will. Ill will. And I started to think about what ill will means. Ill will is the opposite of goodwill. Goodwill is a synonym for metta. Goodwill means I want you to do well. Ill will means I don't want you to do well. I want you to do badly. I actually want you to hurt. And if you look closely at anger, you'll see that there's in it this component of ill will. Well, from a Western psychological perspective, I could kind of rationalize being angry at somebody. But when I started to look at the fact that I wanted them to suffer... Then I realized, you know, this is getting really close to cruelty. Cruelty means we enjoy somebody else's suffering. But wanting somebody to suffer is just one step away from cruelty. And I couldn't live with the idea of myself as a cruel person. I couldn't accept that. I'd been able to accept the idea of myself as an angry person, but I couldn't accept the idea of myself as a cruel person. So I was really motivated to look into this aspect of ill will and to, to change it. I didn't want to do it anymore. So I started sending the same metaphrases to my difficult person. 
And in a little bit of time, I found out that I could reluctantly wish them well. It didn't come easily and it didn't come right off the bat. But after a little practice, I found, okay, I could wish that. It doesn't have to be that they suffer. I can wish them well. When I was able to just wish them a little bit of well, the ill will went away. It completely blocked it. Because you can't both wish well and wish ill at the same time. So the sending of the metta to the difficult person, when I was able to just feel a little bit of well-wishing, stopped the ill will. And then the anger just sort of ran out of gas. It just calmed down and basically ended. It would come back up again, you know, maybe the next day or two days later, and then I'd start with the phrases again. I'd feel some of the goodwill, and then the ill will just dissipated. This was a fantastic lesson for me. And I offer it just as one approach of working with anger when it comes. I encourage you to look into your own suffering when anger is present. Look into this element of ill will and then see if there's a possibility of wishing well and what effect that that can have. It was in this period of practice that something else happened that really woke me up and kind of touched me uh, deeply. Sylvie was talking about the road to to indignation, and I I got a sense of where this road leads. I was starting to get angry again with my difficult person, and this image, a spontaneous image, just came into my mind out of nowhere. I didn't ask for it. I hadn't been trying to create anything. And as the image just appeared and kind of materialized like an image in a dream, it was of a, uh, a dark road going across a barren plain at night, with a tree growing by the side of the road, and the tree had lost all of its leaves, and the wind was howling through the bare branches of the tree. If you think Legend of Sleepy Hollow and the Headless Horseman, you know, you're getting to the atmosphere of this image. It was very cold, barren, dark, desolate, and scary. Very lonely place. And somehow I intuited that's the road of anger. This picture is coming up to represent the road of indignation. And then without intending it, on the other side of my visual field, I started to notice a yellow light. And then as I turned my attention to the yellow light, it became a sun, a bright sun in the sky. And then there appeared a landscape below it, which was a green earth. And on this green earth were seated uh, monks and nuns in meditation posture. And one of them was central and seemed like a Buddha, a Buddha image. And then um, through the air they were flying these uh, beings which looked like uh, the images on Thai art, if you've ever seen Thai art, of people who are seated but traveling through the air, like devas, kind of Thai deva images. And the whole scene was bathed in this warm yellow light of the sun. And somehow the intuition came, that's the destination of metta. The contrast could not have been clearer. The destination of anger, dark, lonely, desolate, barren, scary. The destination of metta, the company of good spiritual friends, warmth, wisdom, light.
that it scared me. It was such a strong message from my own unconscious about the choices that I make. And up until that point, I'd had kind of an attitude that I could indulge my anger without having any consequence. It's okay to be anger, angry. It's not going to hurt anybody if I just run off in my mind for a while. And then I saw there are consequences. There are consequences for my own heart. Running to anger is one destination. Following the path of loving kindness is another destination. It was very motivating for me. It really motivated me to make my best sincere effort in the direction of loving kindness. Authentic spiritual traditions also know about uh, the fruits of anger. The Dalai Lama tells this story of being in India and meeting a Tibetan monk who has managed to escape from Tibet. The Dalai Lama had known this monk briefly before 1959. 1959 was the year that he escaped Tibet after 10 years of Chinese occupation. He had known this this monk only, only slightly. Then the monk had been imprisoned. It was probably during the Cultural Revolution. He was imprisoned. His crime was being a monk. So he was thrown in jail for 20 years. And he came out and made it to India and had a meeting with the Dalai Lama. And the Dalai Lama asked him how his time was. And the monk replied that he had been in danger while he was in prison. And the Dalai Lama said, yes, I totally understand. You were being tortured. You could have been killed at any time. And the monk said, uh, yes, that's true, but that's not really what I meant. He said, I was in danger of feeling angry at my prison at my prison guards. The Dalai Lama said after that, his estimation of this monk went up quite a lot. <laughs> That's amazing practice, to be concerned about being angry towards, towards one's guards and tormentors. This is part of the possibility of this development of the heart of loving-kindness. This is a graduate degree, but it's what's possible for us. It's so amazing. The last of the uh, forms of aversion I wanted to touch on is fear. Sylvia, I think, mentioned that this practice of loving-kindness was originally taught as a protection practice. The story in the commentaries is that the Buddha had instructed this group of monks to go out and sit in a grove of a forest at night and do their meditation. So they obediently did. They went out together. They took their seats in this grove of trees, and they started to get scared. They got frightened, and they ran back to the Buddha and said, we can't meditate there. It's too scary. It's dark. It's nighttime. And the tree spirits were coming out. They were making terrible sounds, and worse than that, they were making really awful smells. So the Buddha said, okay, I'm going to give you a protection that you can take back into the forest and it's the only protection you'll need. I want you to do the practice of loving-kindness. Direct loving thoughts all around you to all beings that are anywhere near. So the monks did that. They went back to the same grove. They started directing their thoughts of loving-kindness. 
Then they reported back to the Buddha a few days later, everything changed. The tree spirits got really friendly to us, and they started doing everything they could to support our practice. And then it was a wonderful place to meditate. What I find interesting in that myth, if you like, is the kernel of truth that when we can change the orientation of the heart to loving-kindness, the whole world around us takes on a warmer feeling. It may not have changed externally, but it feels so different to us. I was teaching a long retreat here a couple of years ago, and one of the people on the month-long retreat had to go out halfway through, travel across the country to the East Coast by airplane to go to a funeral for a close family member. And she was already a couple of weeks into retreat and quite sensitive at that point. And she wanted to keep her retreat space as far as possible, but she was also nervous about this abrupt transition back into the world after two weeks of silence with no integration time. So what I suggested is that anytime she was around a group of people, airport lines, airport uh, waiting lounges on the plane itself, she do uh, constantly the loving-kindness phrases. And then she came back to the retreat about three days later, and she said that had been a fantastic practice because she started to get nervous. It was starting to feel alien, and she was starting to feel alone and isolated. She started to do the loving-kindness practice, and all of a sudden she felt connected to all the people around, recognizing that their wishes also were for safety and happiness and health. And she said it made it easy to take the trip and then come back. Fear has been one of my greatest hindrances, probably my greatest single hindrance through the years of my Dharma practice. I spent a lot of time with it in Vipassana practice. (laughs) Spent many hours on the cushion learning to relate to fear. And I got a tremendous amount from that. I learned how to be with fear with some equanimity, to have it arise and basically not be afraid of the fear. Have it be okay in my body, in my mind. The whole experience of fear got more and more okay. Developed a lot of qualities of acceptance and spaciousness and non-identification with it. But in my personality and my character, when my mind would go out of balance, it would still go to fear. That's kind of how it would tip then after a lot of years of this practice, I did uh, a long metta retreat. And I noticed something really interesting. Although the Vipassana practice had weakened my fear a lot, just over the years made it smaller, 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 smaller. The conditioning was still there. That basic tendency of mind was still there. But after doing the metta practice for some time, all of a sudden there was a new conditioning that could step in. And when my mind would tend to some direction, it would often tend to metta instead of to fear. It gave it another place to go. So I found that the metta could actually put a a new conditioning in place that would replace the conditioning of fear. And I think that's somewhat true, that Vipassana practice tends to reduce our conditioning but it doesn't so much put different conditioning in its place. It's sort of like with Vipassana, we're just stepping back from our conditioning. It's a lot of space. 
But the Brahma Viharas can actually change it so that the heart moves strongly into love and compassion and joy. And that's a great gift, a great gift. So the loving-kindness practice is a terrific um, antidote also for fear, a really great contribution to working with fear. With all these obstacles, one of the ways it's helpful to understand the working is we don't have to attack the obstacle directly. You don't have to do anything to try to push it out. That's really the antithesis of metta. Metta is a welcoming, friendly, accepting kind of energy of whatever is there. So as you're doing the metta phrases and connecting with that sense of caring, if one of these obstacles comes up, judgment, uh, anger, fear, sadness, longing, any of these things, recognize that it's there. You know, this is part of touching into the heart center after each phrase. See what the emotion is that's there. Sometimes it'll be metta, sometimes it won't. Sometimes it'll be one of the obstacles. So notice if that's there, but continue to connect with the caring and the person and the phrases. Then what will happen is these obstacles start to get held in the space of metta. You don't have to make them go away. You don't even have to change them very much. But as they get held in your growing feeling of friendliness and warmth and acceptance, they get included in that. It's kind of like Sylvia was talking about last night about how the, the, your neighbor's habits that irritated you in the beginning of the retreat start to seem cute by the third day. You know, the way somebody clatters their silverware when they're eating in the dining hall. The same thing happens with these difficult states of mind. They start to seem like old friends little bit more like old friends. And you just have the sense that you're including this part of yourself. It's not an easy part. It's not the most fun part, but it's a real part. You're including that difficult part of yourself within the metta. And it all just becomes more and more okay. It's okay that those visitors are there. You don't have to make them go away. The more we open to them and accept like that, the more the steam goes out of their, their sails. They thrive on resistance. The more we open to them, the more they can just go and relax also. As we relax, they relax. This is really the transformation of those difficult states. It's through the openness, through uh, acceptance, and through non-resistance. And that allows them also to relax. So I wanted to talk also about the growing purity in the practice. Sally said this morning that we're really developing two qualities here strongly. One is metta, the other is concentration. We've talked a lot about the metta, so I don't want to focus on that for the rest of this talk. I want to talk about the other property, which is that of concentration. Sylvia started to talk about it last night when she talked about the influence of this quality of rapture, a kind of joyful interest that comes in practice, and how it offsets uh, the tendency of aversion. So I want to talk more about the factor of concentration in practice and the benefits that it brings. What is it? What is concentration? It took me a long time to figure this out in my practice. 
I heard the word talked about, but I didn't have a sense of what, what it meant. This factor is kind of in our consciousness, but it's not very much in our culture. It's an archetypal thing. You know, there are all these images in the West of uh, yogis on mountaintops in Asia. They pop up in cartoons all the time. And the fact that they pop up in cartoons means that they're deep within our psyche somewhere because they're such a recurrent image. Some of the cartoons emphasize the wisdom aspect of these gurus on the mountaintops. And I'm going to steal some of Sylvia's material to tell you about one of these cartoons, which she has authorized me to share before. We're always trying to uh, borrow, beg, or steal each other's material, so it's a great uh, gift. Uh, There's a cartoon with a guru up on the mountaintop, and it's a man with a long beard, just wrapped in a loincloth, sitting at the entrance to a cave with big Himalayan peaks behind him. And in front of him is seated this Western, looks like a Western person dressed in conventional uh, street, street clothes, sitting cross-legged in front of the guru. And the caption is the guru speaking. This is the wisdom transmission. The guru is saying, if I knew the wisdom of life, do you think I'd be sitting in my underpants in this cave? (laughs) That's the wisdom tradition. So the other cartoons that you see are the concentration tradition. And in those, the image is the guru is wrapped up in a shawl. And the eyes are closed and the body is perfectly still. And you get the sense that the the consciousness is very withdrawn into his or her being. This is a strong archetypal image too. And it shows basically the manifestation of concentration. Or the Pali term is samadhi. And there are sort of three things that we notice in this image. One is the inward nature of it. The shawl kind of represents that being wrapped up and drawn within, that cocooning. The second is the stillness of the body. Something ceases moving in concentration. And the third is the blissful nature. That there's a sense that that yogi has found a source of peace and contentment that basically comes from their own mind. And the the phrase happiness comes from within is really validated in this image of samadhi or concentration. Samadhi is the state when the mind has come together and become collected. It's this unification that gives it its blissful nature. It also gives it its strength. That's what also develops the stillness. Most of the time we're giving away this innate strength and contentment by shooting the mind out to the past and future, looking at things with longing or regret, going over and over our worries, our fears, and our hopes. We give away this innate purity. A lot of the, of the purpose of a meditation object is to give a new focus to the mind so that the attention can collect around that object in the present moment and stop this futile wandering into past and future, into hope and fear. This is exactly what the metaphrases do. 
they give an object that hopefully is fairly interesting and has some intrinsic appeal that the mind can collect around. And as it does, you start to feel the calming that comes from the diminishing of hope and fear. And the more that you collect around those phrases and the person, the more you come into the present moment. The more you come fully into the present moment, the more your whole being gets united. Back the way it was when we were kids. Kids live so fully in the present, and that's why they're so whole. That's why they're so well integrated. And with that kind of integration, there's a trust. They have a trust in themselves where they can flow through strong emotions without getting so concerned about it. You don't see kids worrying when they go from laughter to tears. They just pass through the tears and then they're back into laughter again a little bit later. That's that wholeness of heart that comes from the unified mind. As the attention collects around the object, it's as though there's a merging of our consciousness with the object. This merging is very close to the feeling of metta. You know how love is a kind of merging energy. We want to be united with the love object. Concentration has that same kind of effect. There's a merging of the attention with the object when it is of interest. And in that merging, there's a little bit of a death. There's a death of this person and personality that are based in past and future. So sometimes there's a little bit of fear in concentration. It's like if I really give myself to the phrases and the person and the feeling of metta, what's going to be left of me? What's going to be left of my personal history, my past, and my future plans? So there can be a little bit of resistance to this concentration, even though it's a very wholesome state and very uh, deeply satisfying when we give ourselves to it. Rumi had a poem that expresses this a little bit. He said, The way of love is not some subtle argument. The way there is devastation. Birds make great sky circles of their freedom. How do they learn it? They fall. And falling, they're given wings. In our meditation practice, we are encouraged to fall into our object. Let go of past and future. Let go of personality worries. And let your attention fall completely into the person, the phrases, and the feeling in the heart. Falling, you're going to be given wings. You're going to discover that that concentration and the metta that comes with it will hold you up, that it's really all you need. Now, many people come into metta practice with the intention of opening the heart. And that's really all that people are interested in. I often be teaching a Vipassana retreat and talking about some of the Buddha's teachings on impermanence and selflessness. And people will tell me in an interview or sometimes in a question, I'm not interested in your philosophy. I'm just here to open my heart. Come on, just keep it simple. The problem is, this is what I discovered anyway in my life as a young adult, I could contact love quite easily when I was in my late teens and early 20s, but I couldn't stabilize there. I could touch it, but it wasn't repeatable or predictable or sustainable. So I would fall into these states of love, and I don't just mean romantic love, but really love of nature and 
life, the cosmos, I would fall into them and I'd also fall out of them every time. And I didn't know how to uh, get it back or how to sustain it. Through doing Dharma practice, what I've come to believe is that it's very hard to stabilize love without two other factors. The first and really most important is wisdom. We have to have the understanding primarily of non-clinging. That's the only way the heart can stay unburdened, is by learning not to cling to the past. When the heart is unburdened, it's more able to love. But the second factor that really strongly supports that stabilization is the factor of samadhi. Because when concentration is firm and the mind isn't wavering, we're not pulled by hope and fear and all the obstacles. When we're really fully in the moment, we rediscover that native capacity, that childlike capacity for opening. There's nothing else we really have to add but the intention for it and the stabilization. So all the rest of Dharma practice, the wisdom practices of Vipassana, the concentration factor, strongly support this opening into metta. Start to get familiar in your practice with how concentration feels. The sign of it is that you're able to sustain the phrases and close connection with the phrases for a little bit of of time. In the beginning, it might just be 30 seconds. You might just have this feeling, I really connected with phrase after phrase with no gaps for 30 seconds. And that had a certain feeling. And then as it goes on, it'll be a minute and five minutes. And I was talking with someone today who said that in a good sitting today, they'd been able to sustain the phrases for an hour. That's fantastic. Start to notice when this comes in what your experience is like. What does it feel like when the mind is in that concentrated place where you're able to stay connected to the present moment? Is it painful? Generally not. Generally, it's a really sweet place because there's a steadiness of mind and because of that, the steady mind, it's not being pulled through hope and fear. There's a sense that we can relax. There's a sense of being able to uh, feel the body relax in those moments. Tune into that and notice that. As the body relaxes, the mind can have the sense of relaxing into the body, of actually dropping into the body. And it's as though one of the dualities that we've kept of mind as something separate from body, trying to control, manipulate, change, that duality starts to fade and the mind and body come together. Again, a deepening of the unification. And there was one image that came to me as I was doing a period of concentration practice and feeling this settling that uh, it'll give away my age, but I want to share it because some of you may have seen it too. And it's a television commercial from the 50s. Do you all remember the commercials for Prell Shampoo? Some of you? Okay. This is black and white television in my day, but you knew that Prell was a certain color. Prell was green. So there'd be the body of the bottle of the shampoo on the commercial, and then they'd drop something in at the top. Anybody remember what they dropped? Pearl. Yeah, they drop a pearl. A lot of my generation here. <laughs> and that pearl would ever so slowly travel down 
the length of the bottle of Prell and then get to the bottom. And the slowness of its voyage was proof that Prell shampoo was thick and lustrous and good for your hair. <laughs> so you could just feel the, the, the viscosity of the shampoo by how slowly the pearl was dropping down. That is an image for the mind settling into the body in the relaxation of concentration. (laughs) So, you can remember this as the Prel Sutra. (laughs) This sense of the mind settling easily into the body, the body in a state of deep relaxation, brings a lot of contentment with it. It's a very satisfying experience. So to whatever degree you experience it, start to tune into that contentment. There's a peacefulness when the concentration is present. There's an ease. There's a lack of problem in that. And then start to notice what happens when you're not so connected with the phrases. What happens when the mind starts getting distracted again to past and future, to things we like and things we don't like? What does that feel like? It's not so peaceful. It's kind of stirred up and jangly and has sharp edges. And these are the hindrances that Sally talked about a couple of nights ago. The forces of desire, of aversion, of dullness, restlessness, and doubt. Concentration, as it strengthens and deepens, has the power to block off the hindrances. It stops the operations of the hindrances. And for a meditator, you can feel the hindrances are the things that disturb our peace of mind moment after moment after moment. In fact, in every moment when we're not fully in the present. Take a look and see if this isn't so. That unless we're unified in the present moment with our experience, the hindrances are operating in that kind of jangly way. Concentration lets us out of that bondage to the hindrances. The Buddha, in fact, compared this process of coming out of the hindrances to five different experiences. When these five hindrances have been abandoned in oneself, one sees that as freedom from debt, health after a long illness, release from prison, freedom from slavery, and a land of safety. That's how important the absence of the hindrances is. That's how strong it is. Like getting out of prison, like being freed from slavery, like being returned to health. This is a beautiful quality in and of itself, but that's not the end of the benefit of concentration. The most important reason that we develop concentration in Dharma practice is to steady the mind so that we can see into the nature of things more and more clearly. It's seeing into the nature of things with clarity that the Buddha said brings liberation, brings the insight that finally frees the heart. Concentration in itself is a beautiful place, but it's impermanent. It can decay. Just as it was built up by factors and circumstances, it will decay in the absence of those factors and circumstances. A lasting peace and a lasting freedom is only possible through deep uh, insight into the nature of things and the nature of the unconditioned. 
So concentration, although it can be developed to these depths of absorption called jhanas, provide the seclusion from the hindrances and a great sense of well-being and contentment, aren't the final step on the journey. The final step is to take that base of steadiness of mind and direct it toward understanding of the nature of life and existence. And from that, the freedom, the lasting freedom can spring. When these two go together, the stability of concentration, the flowering of metta, and also supported by insight, then we get a sense of this uh, beautiful abiding that the Buddha talked about in the Metta Sutta. And so I'll just close with a short quote from that. So with a boundless heart, one should cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upward to the skies and downward to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. Let's just sit together for a minute, please. This talk was given by Guy Armstrong at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on January 8, 2004. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.